We're going to continue on with our study in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. Um, we've been in chapters 12, 13, and 14, which is one long section. We've titled our series, The Spirit-Filled Church. Um, and if you've been traveling with us on this little journey, then the spirit-filled side of it probably makes a lot of sense. The word spirit or spiritual or the gifts of the spirit has been kind of a constant refrain every week. But now we start to get into um, the, the second half where the word church becomes important. And specifically, what Paul is talking about for all of chapter 14 has to do with how these spiritual gifts work out when we gather. The focus is on how this metaphor he used earlier of the body of Christ functions when we assemble together, when we join together, when we're in the same place at the same time. And it's important that you keep that in mind. Uh, if you don't, it will skew your understanding of this chapter because he's not talking um, and giving ultimate statements about the value of one gift over another, but about the value of gifts in this setting, in the setting when we gather together. Um, but it's this passage in particular, as we look at um, our section today, is especially helpful for addressing uh, a very basic and simple question. And so before we answer it today, I'll just ask it to you. Why are you here? And I don't mean that in the big existential universal sense. I mean, why are you here right now? Why did you not try and glean back that hour the clock so wickedly stole from you last night and sleep in? Why do you feel the need to come and gather with Christians and go to church, as is said? When we do this, why, why do we do it? What are we about? And simply put, there's two aspects of what it looks like for us to gather, not just here on Sundays, but anytime you intentionally gather with the church. So as you go to your home groups during the week, uh, as you sit down to pray with one another, uh, as you have a Bible study or whatever it is that you do, where the church is gathered, okay? Um, there's two aspects of that, okay? The first, the first is we always gather around Jesus. He's the center. He's the focal point of everything we do. In fact, the easiest answer when we say, why do we gather, is because of Jesus. If Jesus hadn't come and lived and died and resurrected, then we wouldn't be here. The church wouldn't exist apart from the life of Christ. Notice I didn't say apart from the teaching of Christ. Although Jesus' teaching, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, is clearly an ethical pinnacle, something that all people, uh, many people recognize and subscribe to, even if they don't think of Jesus as being anything more, the idea that Jesus was a great ethical teacher is a pretty standard thing. But I'm not convinced there would be a church without what comes next, without his sacrificial death, and especially without his miraculous resurrection. Paul, in the next chapter of 1 Corinthians, is going to say, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we are of all people to be most pitied. Why? Because we build our life on that foundation. And so when we gather, we gather because Jesus has done this, and frankly, you can see signs of that absolutely everywhere in what we do. When we sing songs, we sing songs 
unto the Lord. We sing them to Jesus. We proclaim what he's done. We worship him in response for what he's done on our behalf. When we take communion, we remember. And what do we remember? We remember Jesus' death on our behalf. We remember the new covenant in his shed blood. And so we focus on him. And so this is, uh, this is one half. We come because Jesus has done and we're responding to what Jesus has done. But the other half that's proclaimed, not in tension uh, with that, but um, interconnectedly with that, is we come for one another. We come to, as Paul will say in the passage today, to build one another up. The word that the New Testament often uses as an English translation for the word that Paul likes to use is to edify. And it's a construction term. It means to stack one brick upon another, to build a building, to strengthen And we come as a church to do that, and everything we do has that aspect. And so we look at communion, which is clearly focused on Christ, and yet just a few chapters ago, Paul reminded us that when we eat that, we need to do so discerning the body of Christ, being aware that all of us partake of the same loaf. And so we eat together. In the same way, we sing songs as unto the Lord, but Colossians tells us when we come together to sing songs to one another. You see, because when we worship the Lord publicly, when it's these songs of praise coming out of our mouth, they're instructive for those hearing us. We all know what it's like to not feel like we can sing today. That doesn't mean that the time of worship isn't for you. It's especially for you. Those things that are being proclaimed in the mouths of others that you have a hard time articulating yourself are just as true when they resonated with you last week. They're small and short sermons being preached to you to remind you who God is and what God has done and how that has changed you. Everything we do is built around those two foundations. Every time we gather, the focus should be on Jesus. He's the one we proclaim. He's the one we worship. And the secondary and related focus is to build up the church, to edify one another. Notice that although you are a part of both of those halves, you're clearly kind of the um, caboose in the train of the church. The focus is Jesus and others. And so you worship Jesus and you seek to build up. You have a part in that because you're part of the church. And so you're here to be built up. That's fine. You're here to learn about Jesus. But even learning about Jesus, if you carry it the whole way through, is actually Jesus-focused. Let me just put it in a different language. We come to understand who the God is we worship and what he requires of us, right? The focus is still on Jesus. And so what Paul is going to address today is how two particular gifts integrate into that mindset and how the church in Corinth has gone askew, has forgotten why they gather and how that's um, changing the way they view and use the gifts to their own deficit. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 this morning. Um, You can open your own Bible there, or if you need a Bible this morning, in the back of a pew nearby, you will find one. 1 Corinthians is one of the New Testament letters, uh, and you can use the index in the front of your Bible to find it. We'll be in chapter 14. We're going to read the first 12 verses today, and then we'll pray. Pursue love and earnestly desire 
the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue, you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none of them was, is without meaning. But I do not, if sorry, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Let's pray. Father, your word through the Apostle Paul capstones at both ends with strive for the gifts for the sake of the church. I pray, Lord, that we would be a gifted congregation, that you would sovereignly and graciously empower us by your spirit. But I also pray, Lord, that we would use those gifts as they were intended. And that we would be a built-up body, as it says in the book of Ephesians, that we would devote ourselves to the pursuing of the building up of the body, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that every piece, when it's doing its work in love, the body will be built up. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand why we're here this morning, why it's important to gather as a church, and how we are to behave and what we are to focus on when we do so. We pray this in your name this morning. Amen. I want you to look again with me at verse 1 of this chapter. Paul says here, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Now, he's actually just repeating what he's already said. If you go back to the very end of chapter 12, verse 31, he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I'll show you a still more excellent way, which is love. And so he leads into chapter 13, and he leads out of chapter 13 with the same two statements. Focus on love and desire spiritual gifts, especially the best gifts. Okay? And so the emphasis he's making here is, is twofold. One, the orientation that we should have towards one another, towards our goal as a church, is summed up just in the phrase love. That's the goal. That's the purpose. Once he's stated that, he comes back and he says, but do desire spiritual gifts. Now, I'll be honest. When you read through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, it can seem, uh, at the very least, it can seem unfamiliar. But it can also seem somewhat cryptic. 
Today we're going to talk about the gift of speaking in tongues. Uh, you know, speaking in a language that you have not been trained in, that you do not uh, actually understand yourself unless you pray for interpretation. It's inherently miraculous. It's inherently other. Prophesying is the same way. It's something that falls in the category of a revelatory word from the Lord. But if you look through the rest of the list of the gifts, you're also going to find healings, you're going to find miracles, and intermingled with them, you're going to find normal and usual things that we wouldn't think are God things. They're just people things. We would say, okay, a spiritual gift is doing a miracle, and a talent is teaching, or a talent is hospitality, or, you know, I just have a bent towards generosity. And Paul says, no, all of those are spiritually endowed. But nonetheless, there is this discussion of gifts um, that may seem to us today to be uh, very foreign. In fact, some, mostly because of their own personal experience in the day and age we live in, some have said, you know what, most of the things Paul's talking about here have really no relevance to the church today. These are things that were alive and active in the first century of the church that just kind of laid the foundation. And as soon as we got the scriptures, we no longer needed those things. The problem with that is that every time Paul talks about the spiritual gifts, he does draw a line in the sand and say they will come to an end, but it's at the end of all things. We saw that last week when he said, look, prophesying is going to pass away. Tongues, knowledge are going to pass away when that which is perfect has come. Okay? For now, he says, we know in part, but then we shall know fully. How many of us can say just because we have the Bible now, we know completely, we understand God completely? He's clearly talking about the end. He's talking about when Jesus returns. He's talking about the consummation of all things. In the same way, when Peter is addressing, on the day of Pentecost, a large crowd of people of Jewish descent who have gathered for the festival of Pentecost, and this outpouring of the Spirit has happened, and speaking of tongues has happened, and people are hearing in their own languages these men and women praising God, when he explains what happens, he reaches into the Old Testament, into the book of Joel, and he says, this is what Joel talked about when Joel said, your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your young men will have vision, and your old men will dream dreams. He says, this is that. And then he says to that audience, and this promise is for you and your children and all who will come after him. Okay, and so he sets the promise very broad. Now, why am I taking the time to emphasize this this morning? It's not just because there's differences of opinion. It's because there's a tendency to feel like even if these things are available, they're not for me. There's, there's, they're at the very least irrelevant. At the worst, you know, they kind of make me nervous. I've had weird experiences with them in the past. Paul emphasizes at the beginning of this section, all the way back in chapter 12, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant about the spiritual gifts. Now, he's writing to a church that is really proactively utilizing the gifts. All the way back in the beginning of the letter, he commends them for being full of spiritual gifts. And so there's still ignorance there that needs to be dealt with. They know what they have. They have no idea how to use it properly. Okay. But nonetheless, this morning, Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant of these spiritual gifts. In fact, he's going to say halfway through the passage, maybe you noticed, I wish you all would speak in tongues. If Paul was here and you asked him, what do you want for your church? He'd say, I want you to enjoy and experience the gifts that God has given. 
So we need to keep both of those things in mind this morning. Both uh, that, that these gifts are for us today, for this church, for anywhere where Jesus has poured out his spirit and made us believers, for any who say, by the power of the spirit, going back to chapter 12, Jesus is Lord. These are available for us. Now God gives those sovereignly, but what does he say here? That we should earnestly desire them. Simply put this morning, that's, that's one of my main and primary desires for us as a church. If we can get that fi- far where we're willing to want, then we're halfway there. Okay? And so he says here that we should earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And then he says, especially that you may prophesy. Now it's pretty clear that he has selected prophesying and tongues intentionally. Not because they're more important, not because they're the brackets of the best gift and the worst gift, but most likely because these are ones of particular interest to the church in Corinth. At the very least, as you read through the rest of chapter 14, they are obsessed with the gift of tongues. Um, But here, although he speaks of prophesying, he adds later revelation, a word of knowledge, and even teaching. He's making a contrast here, and so really prophesying is just standing in as an example. But it is an appropriate one. You see, when we read through the book of Acts, uh, there is this ongoing pattern that we see of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Every time the gospel goes into a new territory, the Spirit shows up just like he did on the day of Pentecost, and people begin to do what? Speak in tongues. But also, not only in the book of Joel does it say that, um, as we saw, that your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and Peter connects the dots and says, that's, that's going on, this is what the Spirit does. But later on in Acts chapter 10, when the Spirit pours out, not only are they speaking in tongues, but also prophesying. Okay? And so these, these two gifts are um, well-known related manifestations of the Spirit. They're they're the two that are pointed to. Like I said, Paul adds many others on the list in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4. There's other gifts on the list, but these two we find kind of trailing behind what the Spirit is doing in new churches over and over again. And so he selects them to make a point, but his point is bigger than these two gifts. So, Um, He says, especially here, that you may prophesy, and then without mentioning it beforehand, he contrasts that with tongues. Look at verse 2. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Do you see here how he's contrasting the two? And so he says, one speaks to God and not to men. The other speaks to people for their encouragement. He goes on in verse 5. Uh, sorry, in verse uh, verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So he just lays these gifts next to one another, and he says, let's see how they're different. Now, this is a helpful passage because we start to better understand here the gift of tongues. As I earlier defined it, it is speaking in a language that you are not trained in, that you do not personally know. Paul makes clear in another passage that this is something uh, that doesn't necessarily even register in your mind. 
meaning not that you talk mindlessly, but that you don't understand the words you're saying either. But here he says something important. He says the gift of tongues is speaking to God and not to men. Okay? And so what this gift is effectively is directed at God. In fact, um, in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, when, when this first happening, this first outpouring on the day of Pentecost happens, what it says is that many people heard in their own language uh, people from the church telling of the mighty works of God. So they, were, they, were, they were proclaiming the things that God had done in worship. Later in Acts chapter 10, it says that they were in tongues extolling God. Later in this chapter, in um, verses 14 through 16, uh, listen to what he says. He says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my mind. I'll sing praise with my spirit, but I'll sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if I give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone else in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving? So what does he say about the gifts here? He says that speaking in tongues is an act of thanksgiving. He says it's an act of praising and singing unto the Lord. It's an act of praying. All of that to say that it's God-directed. Okay, And so the spiritual experience of tongues is effectively worshiping in another language. He also tells us about the gift here um, in verse 4, that he who speaks in tongues edifies himself. And so I want you to notice, even though he's going to say that this is something that's primarily for private use, it has the same two focus points that we already talked about in the gifts as, as a whole, in the church as a whole. It's unto God, and it's for the sake of building up. What he's saying here is not that tongues has no value, but that it primarily only has personal value. That it's only of a value to us when we gather if there's interpretation. Effectively, what he says in this passage is to use it in a public setting is to misunderstand what the public setting is for. All of us are missing an hour of sleep right now. And I could lay down on this stage and take a nap and I'd have no problem with that. But I'd be lying to myself if I said that benefited you in any way. You can't glean from my nap just by seeing it happen. Right? <laughs> That's what he's saying here about the gift of tongues. He's saying that it can build you up, that it's valuable in worship, but that it doesn't serve other people around you, unlike the other gifts. In fact, when you look at the other gifts, they're more clearly outward focused. One of the gifts he lists is hospitality. You cannot be hospitable to yourself. Okay? Treating yourself may be a nice thing to do, but it's not one of the spiritual gifts, and that's not a manifestation of the gift of hospitality. We teach others. We do not teach ourselves. We don't have a word from the Lord for ourselves. We don't prophesy for ourselves. You don't administrate yourself, right? All of these gifts that Paul lists are inherently, intentionally outward focused. That makes tongues unique. Now, I want to point out something that's really important. That doesn't mean that tongues doesn't benefit the church because anytime you grow, we grow. The question here, once again, is not, is the gift of tongues valuable for the church? It's when it's used publicly, is it any value right there to the rest of the church? Would it be any different than if you did it quietly and to yourself? And Paul's adamant answer is, 
No, it brings no benefit to do it publicly and aloud unless there's interpretation. That's the case that he's trying to make this morning. But I want you to recognize here that Paul's desire is that your devotional life, that your private life would be something special. The gift of tongues here is about worship, worship that edifies when you're alone, when you're in private. Okay? The, the reason why I say this is because it's pretty clear that God has given these gifts to the church. It's pretty clear that God has given the gift of tongues for a reason. And the reason effectively across the board is so that we might grow. Now, how does the gift of tongues function in that way? What it does for us is it allows us to worship beyond our comprehension. It allows us to worship when we can't find it in our minds to do so. Have you ever had an experience where you just feel like God has met you while you're singing to the Lord, while you're gathered with the church? It's, it's a worship experience, but it's kind of like the audience itself fades away and you just feel ministered to. Have you ever thought about how weird that is? The, the orientation of all the music is about the goodness and the great, greatness of God. Why do we benefit from that at all? It's because, it's because these things are true. It's because this is really who God is. It's because sometimes when we sing, we sing better than we know. And we proclaim who God is even to ourselves and we remind ourselves and we're like, yes, that's true. You are faithful. You are good. Tongues works that way. Now, one of the clear teachings we get from this passage is that God is an experiential God. Look at the ministry of Jesus. I've read books before that had titles like Encounters with Jesus, and I always thought that was appropriate, even though nobody's going to write a book about me called Encounters with Justin, right? Generally, we reserve that word for the out there, right? You can have an alien encounter. You can have an encounter with God. It implies the other. But when we look at Jesus' ministry, nobody ever gets what they expect with Jesus. He seems like a traveling, homeless teacher, and they walk away with their lives changed, with their dead children given back to them, alive, with their disease that they've lived with their whole life taken away, with an understanding of love that's penetrated past the social boundaries, which were so strong and rigid in those days. I mean, just, just, look, at, uh, just look at Hindu culture as a comparison, because it still maintains a caste system in a way that was true in the days of Israel. Hinduism teaches that the caste system is a consequence of karma. And so those lines are incrossable. If you're part of the untouchables, that is a life sentence. If you're in the lower caste, that is a life sentence. That goes so against the grain of how we think as Americans, right? The whole American dream is the ability to be mobile between statuses, to grow into places that you can go from an orphan to an oil baron. That's how we think of things in America. But in Jesus' day, that was not true. When labels were made, when first impressions were given, they were written in Sharpie and they were inescapable. And so there was that one time and now that's who you are. <laughs> There's a guy 
uh, in the book of Mark who's known as blind Bartimaeus. He's so blind it's part of his name. Okay. Here's the point. Blind Bartimaeus wasn't blind anymore. The Syrophoenician woman who was on the outside, an outsider, became an insider. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, becomes a child of Abraham. Okay, the encounters that people had with Jesus were nothing short of life-changing. And there's a tendency, I think, to think, well, today's different because Jesus is gone. And that's clearly and obviously true, but it's also incomplete. When Jesus ascends into heaven and the church begins in the book of Acts, Luke, our author, writes these words. The former account I made to you, O Theophilus, the book of Luke, about the things that Jesus began to do and teach. He says Luke is only the beginning. Here in the book of Acts is a continuation of the story. Simply put, because of the spiritual gifts that God has given the church, Jesus is still working. And as we talked about in chapter 12, the goal of the gifts is so that Jesus would be made made manifest to one another. When you rightly use the gifts, people encounter Jesus. You show hospitality and they feel the welcome of God the Father. You're generous and they feel the compassion of God in their circumstances. You teach and they come to know the truth who is God. The purpose of the gifts, like I said, are Christ-oriented for the sake of the church. And so when they're rightly and properly used, it's not just the church being nice. It's Jesus' ministry continuing. It's the power of God being made manifest today in people's lives. I know you guys have observed this. I know you have had things in your life that when you do the sums on it, when you add up the equation, there's clearly a hidden variable. Somebody says something nice, but it just pierces you to the heart. It becomes your anthem for the year. It's a determinant moment in your life that spares you or saves you from a terrible decision. Have you had these experiences? I can't be the only one. When, Jesus, or when Paul says that we are the body of Christ, it's not just that we're all joined together and united. It's that we are working on Jesus' behalf, that we are his hands and feet and heart. Okay? And so that is the concept that he's talking about. And the gift of tongues, God has given to the church so that we might grow, to make us stronger, so that we might worship beyond what we know. You cannot get around the fact that the spiritual gifts as laid out in the New Testament are nothing short of miraculous. They really are God things. And God desires for you to have them and to use them. Let me ask you frankly this morning. Have you ever asked if God would give you the gift of tongues? I'm not saying if you ask, he will give you. This passage is really clear. Paul in chapter 12 says, rhetorically, do all have the gift of tongues? What is the rhetorical implied answer? No. He says in chapter 12 that the Spirit gives as he sovereignly does. But that doesn't change the fact that this is a good gift and it's worth asking for. And as James says, if you have not, maybe it's because you ask not. I had a friend, he was a cessationist, 
which is just a long word that means that he didn't believe that these gifts were for today. He was thoroughly convinced of it. He would argue with me and with others about it. And one day during a worship service, he just started speaking in tongues. And so I asked him afterwards, I said, hey, wait a minute, what were you just doing? And he says, well, I've never done that before. And I didn't really believe in it, but I'm having a hard time saying anything about it now. <laughs> Paul says that this is a good gift. It's one that's valuable in devotional life. It's one that will build you up, even though you can't comprehend it. It's inherently spiritual. But when we gather together, when we gather together, he says, you should aim for building one another up. And so he says, for that, prophesying is a much better gift. Now, the question becomes, what is prophesying? And sometimes, oftentimes when you read commentaries, but sometimes beyond that, people will say, well, prophesying is just teaching the Bible. It's just expositional preaching. It's a very difficult line to maintain. When you look through the same New Testament that we find this letter in, we discover um, prophesying that looks a whole lot more than what I'm doing this morning. Okay. There's Agabus, the prophet, who comes to the church in Jerusalem and says, God has revealed to me there's going to be a famine, and we need to prepare for it. There's Philip's four virgin daughters who are all known as prophets. There's the prophets who gather in the church of Antioch and then speak a word to Paul and Barnabas, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to. Okay. It's different. Paul puts it in the same category later in this passage with revelation. The idea being saying something that you did not know. God giving you something that, and now you know more than you did speaking into one another's lives. And so, once again here, we have a miraculous gift, and he's holding it up here, and he says it's another one that we should pursue. Now, there are lots of ways to misunderstand this gift. Let me just go down the list very quickly. First, just like tongues or every other, any other gift, this is not a gift that's given to everybody all the time for whenever they want it. God sovereignly gives out these gifts. Also, although we find prophets in the Bible, we see with most of the gifts that there's the gift, and then sometimes there's the role. And we can call the role just a continuous and constant version of the gift. Okay? So there's the gift of teaching, and then there's teachers. There's the gift of prophecy, and then there's prophets. Okay? The point is this. Sometimes God just gives us gifts for the moment, for the time being. as just a one-off. But other times, he gives us an ongoing and continuing gift. And so, when he says here that he desires that we all should prophesy, it doesn't, it shouldn't be taken to mean that we should practice. That we should just say things to one another and see what sticks. Also, for the most part, when we think of prophecy, we confuse that with prediction meaning that it involves always the future. But if you look at even just the books that we call the prophets in the Old Testament, you will find that element, you will find the predictive, but you will find a lot more than that. In fact, what does Paul say in these verses? Um, he says in um, verse 3, On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their consolation. Okay? So upbuilding is the word we already talked about. It's for their edification. 
prophecy builds up other people. When he says here, for their encouragement, he uses a word that's often used of the Holy Spirit himself, parakaleo, the one who comes alongside. It means for support. They feel supported, as if you come and put your arm around them and walk with them through something. And the last one, comforted or consolation, I think is pretty self-explanatory, that when things are hard, there's joy. When things are dark, there's light. When things seem bad, there's permanence and goodness. It's consolation, it's comfort. But notice how much of the emphasis is put there without telling people what to do, without telling people what's going to happen, which are really the only two ways we generally think of the gift of prophecy. Okay. His contrast he makes with the gift of tongues is helpful here too, because he says here that the gift of tongues speaks unto God, but the gift of prophecy speaks unto people. But I think implied, because this is how all the gifts work, generally prophecy involves God. It's speaking about God. It's a proclamation of what God is going to do, what God has done, who his character is. And once again, maybe you've had the privilege of experiencing this gift. I've been in a time of worship before where time was open for people to uh, speak if they had a word from the Lord. And oftentimes, two things happen. People begin to speak and they just make very short proclamations about who God is, sometimes in the very words of scripture. And then the second thing that always happens is I hear this noise, mm. <laughs> right? The idea here is that that word is a fitting word, that it's what I needed to hear right now, that it so meets our circumstances. Okay, I'm sure you know this, I love the Bible. I hold it in very high regard. I believe that it really is the word of God and that God has given it the totality of it so that we can live the Christian life. But it's also like 1,500 pages, right? And so uh, there's a lot in here that you've heard that you forget. There's a lot in here that is relevant to your circumstances that you've never heard. Prophesying is a gift where God just connects and speaks to people directly. Now, to be clear, Paul makes clear later that all prophecies should be tested. And clearly there, he's especially meaning the ones that make requirements of you or speak of what's going to come. On top of that, all prophecy is subject to the word of God. All the way back when the, the office of prophet is started with Moses, a command is given, if a prophet gives a prophecy that leads you away from God, Jehovah, he's not a true prophet, okay? And so prophecy is not authoritative, ultimately, I'll tell you this, all of my encounters with prophetic gifts have been crazy, totally weird. The first occasion I was in Bible college and I, I ended up at some Bible study, you'll see why I use air quotes in just a second. Uh, I didn't know who was going to be there, I don't remember why we went, but we were there. It was like two counties away, but we lived in California, so you drive long distances to stuff. Um, so we're in this group, and this woman is teaching out of a book that is not the Bible. I still don't know what it was. I don't really remember understanding anything she shared, to be honest. And it was, it was a little wild. There was, there was an infertile couple there, and she was speaking loudly in tongues and slaying them in the spirit. And all these things were going on, and I was uber sensitive to this because I was a Bible college student. 
And so all I could think the whole time was just alarm bells going off about how weird this was and how inappropriate. But in the midst of that, we're having a time of prayer, and this woman opens her eyes, and she starts speaking to me. And I don't remember everything she said, but I'll tell you what, it was like she knew me intimately. She said things about me that I was unwilling to say about myself. She told me that I had the gift of teaching. She was the first one ever to do so. She'd never met me before. I hadn't said a word the whole night. And as she started to talk about these things, it penetrated deeply. And simply put, I've always been fine with that, and here's why. Because Balaam is a weird prophet, and God speaks to him through a donkey. (laughs) And as funny as that is, what's more amazing is that Balaam ends up proclaiming a prophecy of the ministry of Jesus, even though he's a totally weird and inappropriate guy that God is constantly having to discipline. Okay? The whole point of the spiritual gifts is they're not an earmark of Christian maturity. But don't use Christian immaturity and irresponsibility as a denial of the gifts. The word gift means graciously given, not deserved. So don't be surprised. Another time a lady calls, I'm working for another church, she calls to ask if we can help her with a hotel room for the night. The budget was tight, so I had to apologize, say we couldn't do so, but I said I'd love to pray for you because I believe that God provides, even when we're not part of that process. So I prayed for her, and afterwards she said, you know, while you were praying, I really felt like the Lord wanted me to tell you something. And I was like, okay, here we go. And it was the same thing. And she walked down and confirmed some of those things I'd been told the first time and added a few to the list. And it was the same thing where I was completely caught off guard by the reality itself. Here's the point, okay? The purpose of prophecy is for God to speak to us, not to say something new, not to say something novel, not to add to the canon of scripture, but to connect the dots between who he is and what he's doing and what we need to know. That's why Paul says, earnestly desire the gift of prophecy. If you're struggling today, teaching is good. It's great. And sometimes God speaks prophetically through teaching. These gifts are not, um, uh, what's this, Uh, hermetically sealed. right? It's not like when you were a kid and your food can't touch. These gifts overlap and they integrate the whole thing. Okay? but we should desire for this to be happening in the church. Let me just say something that should be honest to you, obvious to you if you're a Christian this morning. God desires for you to know him better. He desires to speak into your life. He's not sitting up there silently going, man, I sent them a really long letter. They have everything they need. I wish they'd just read it. Okay. He's given us this gift, and it's a good thing. And so... So when you have those encounters with comfort beyond the ability of the comforter, with encouragement beyond the ability of the encourager, when people seem to know exactly what's going on, when you feel like I know what's going on in your life and you want to know who told me, those are elements of the fact that God is bigger than people and he works in the church in a spiritual and a miraculous way. So with that being said, let's continue. What does he say in verse 5? Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Okay, Paul's just expressing his desire. He's not giving them a command. He's saying, if if I had it my way, I wish you all would speak in tongues. In fact, he says later in the chapter, I speak in tongues more than all of you. 
It's something that he leans on and uses readily and available. Why don't we have a record of him ever doing it? Because he doesn't do it publicly, <laughs> right? But nonetheless, he says, I speak in it more than any, but when I gather, I'd rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in tongues. And so he says here, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Let me put it in the context of a principle for everything we do as a church, for the use of the gifts as a whole. Use the gifts to build up the church. Desire the ones the church needs most to be built up. When you use them, keep the focus on Jesus for the sake of the church. Okay? That's the underlying principle that applies to all the gifts that he's just unpacking specifically for the one here. Okay. Let me just use, before we move forward, one more illustration of how this works with hospitality. Hospitality is one of those gifts that seems very normal and natural. You just have a desire to put out a good spread and make people feel at home. But I think we all know that you can use the same elements of hospitality to proclaim your wealth. Right? Do we really think these incredible spreads at the table, you know, of a, a king in some television show or, uh, or these massive dining room tables are really about loving on those guests? Or are they a demonstration of how well your stocks are doing? You know, one way this goes wrong just in hospitality in general, because like many of the gifts, we're not just called to use the gift of hospitality. We're called to be hospitable even if you don't have the gift. One of the ways that I have felt this work out is, is when we're unwilling to be hospitable because we don't think we have anything to share. If you're going to sit at the table and eat, you can be hospitable. Hospitality is about inviting people into what you have, not waiting until you have more than you need. Okay? But what's wrong with that idea? Where does it come from? The focus is off. We've made the gift about us. And so here, I think you can all recognize why prophesying could fall into that camp and you become the prophet, right? Or you use prophecy to get your way. And so you say, I have a word from the Lord for you, brother. You really need to sell your car to me cheaply, right? It's the reason I'm bringing this up is because this is what we do with good things, okay? We take good things and we make them bad things. Paul wants to remind us this morning, A, that that doesn't make them bad things. And B, we need to remember what they're there for. We need to remember how to use them. And so he says, continuing in verse 5, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Even here, he doesn't say that tongues should never be used in the church. He says if it's used, it needs to be used with interpretation. He says in chapter 12 that that's another gift that God gives, the ability to interpret tongues. Now, we've already seen some basic metrics that we should keep in mind, that if there's an interpretation of a tongue, it should be somehow a God-given word, or a word given towards God, right? And so if there's a prayer for an interpretation of a tongue and it's telling us, speaking to us at all, then it's, it's not necessarily the interpretation. But nonetheless here... He says that the gift is available, and he says even those who speak in tongues, if they want to use their tongues in the fellowship of the church, should pray for the gift of interpretation. But nonetheless, he says the goal is to build up the church. Now, brothers, verse 6, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? 
So he says here that tongues needs something else. It has to be supplemented for it to be valuable to the church. The obvious idea being, why not just leave tongues at home and use these other ways to build up the church? And then he gives us a couple of illustrations, and they're helpful for us this morning. Look at verse 7. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? So the first thing he says is, look, even with an instrument that doesn't have a brain, we design them to be diverse enough to make sense, right? So that they can do notes and rhythm. That's why you've never heard anyone do a rain stick solo, right? You can, you can put it in the background, you can do something with it, but there's no value to it because it's, it doesn't have the ability to be valuable. Do you see how that relates to tongues? He's talking from an outside perspective. He says, tongues to the uninitiated who are not speaking in it when it's not your own language, it doesn't mean anything to you. When somebody speaks in tongues, you're never going to hear that prophetic, mm. He continues on here, and he gives another illustration, eight, verse 8. And if the bugle gives, an, bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Here's what he's talking about here. Purpose, productivity, accomplishment, consequence. He says, imagine a bugle player who doesn't know how to play the difference between the call to war and taps. And it's somewhere in between, and you don't know if you should mourn or put your gear on, right? The idea here is when we gather together, we need to be thoughtfully pursuing productivity. What is that productivity? That others would be built up, encouraged, edified, strengthened, comforted, loved. And he says tongues fall short of that because it's indistinct, because it's incomprehensible to those who aren't doing it. Verse 9, so with yourselves, if you utter tongue, you uh, utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. You see, here's the thing. Why is tongues an attractive gift to the church in Corinth? Because it's public. And he says, at best you're speaking into the air, but they would speak back, well, yeah, but it's air with an audience. They may not know that that's their motivation, but the thing about the gift of tongues in the church in Corinth is that it was flashy. It, it spoke, they believed, of their character, that they were in the inside club of Christianity. Look what I can do. You see, we can use a lot of gifts to do that. If you come and you lead the church in worship, it can be, look what I can do. Right? When you teach... And maybe you've heard it. Sometimes the subtext beneath teaching is, look how great I am. Look how incredible my vocabulary. Look how I can rhyme all of these words, right? The subtext of the gift matters. And he, he's subtly, without coming out and saying it here, he's pointing to the fact that their subtext is wrong. So when they use the gifts of tongues, who's the focus on? It's not on the Lord. It's not on Jesus. It's not on God. It's on them. And he says that's partially because the gift of tongues doesn't work publicly any other way. Have you ever been in a church service where somebody spoke up, and spoke, uh, spoke up in tongues? Right? And you turn around and you watch. And then it's over. That's the problem that he's pointing to. But recognize here that the church is not free of the danger of making showing up on Sunday about us about demonstrating our self-righteousness or our faithfulness or proving how close we are to the Lord. 
I've known people who have a completely different vocabulary on Sundays than they do other days. We bend these things very easily, and Paul just wants us to straighten them again and say, when you get up in the morning on Sunday and you say, why am I going to church? You should repeat two answers. I'm going to worship Jesus, and I'm going to build up the church. And as you come and as you have conversations, you got to strive for this. I know better than anyone because I'm the only professional Christian in the room, right? I have to be here. If I don't show up, things go sideways. You know, that's, that's part of the role. And so I'm just, I'm just aware of these things in a different way. And there are Sundays where I get home and I'm like, I can't believe how much time I wasted. Why do I think that way? Because there's a purpose to why we gather. So he calls us to be proactive here. So verse 10, there is doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and a speaker the foreigner to me. What is he saying here? He's saying, look, all languages have value as long as you understand them. But if somebody speaks in a language you don't know, there's instantly a line between you. Do you understand why to Paul that would be inappropriate for a church service to create this division? Here's the thing. Although the church is tremendously exclusive, because its membership is by definition those who have recognized that they are sinners in need of a savior and have put their full weight on Jesus. There's no other way into the church. So it's tremendously exclusive, but it's tremendously inclusively exclusive because it sets the bar so low, all you have to do to qualify is be unqualified, right? You just have to recognize that. You have to open up to that. You have to enter into that. There is no one who today can't become a Christian and receive Jesus, okay? And so that inclusivity is part of this body. All the walls and barriers have been broken down. If we use the gifts in a way that creates teams, that divides the body of Christ, if we use it in a way that separates us into categories, if we make foreigners in the family of Christ, then something's gone sideways. Like I said, the gifts point us to the ministry of Jesus happening in our lives today. Jesus was constantly helping people inviting them in and calling them in. He was never isolating anyone. It's something we need to watch out for today. Also, it speaks of context. The gifts work well when you're aware of who you're serving. And so hospitality is great unless you forget that the person you're trying to be hospitable to is a vegan. Right? Uh, a music style is great in and of itself. But if it doesn't fit the rest of the church and, you know, all they hear is noise, then it's not a loving music style to employ for the church. If it's unintelligible, like some jazz is to me, and I wish I was smart enough to get jazz, but I, I can't follow it, especially the acid jazz, the more modern stuff that's out now, it doesn't mean anything to me. And so it's not going to emotively impact me like music I understand. Paul says the same thing here about the gifts. So he closes here and he says in verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit. Notice here, he doesn't critique them for that. He doesn't say, why are you so caught up in spiritual experience? He says, no, just remember what it's there for. 
Sense you eagerly desire manifestations of the Spirit. Strive to excel in building up the church. If you're currently and actively trying to build a house with a poor hammer, and you come across that hammer from Wreck-It Ralph, you know what it's for, right? You've been doing this all day. You know the insufficiency of your own ability, and so you're going to use it to build the house. If you strive to build up the church and you eagerly desire for God to gift you, the two will coincide and, so, and do what they're supposed to do. They'll point to Jesus and they'll build up the church. Let's pray. Father, I want to confess for myself publicly and for us collectively um, that there's a lot of reasons why we don't deal with the gifts rightly. That there's fear here. Fear of exposing ourselves to experience. Fear of asking and not receiving. There's fear of using the gifts and how other people will see us. There's fear of trying these things out and not knowing what we're here for. And there's also abuses, Lord. We have the, the innate ability as human beings to take a good gift and to use it in a bad way, to use it to promote ourselves. I just pray, Lord, that you would reorient our heart in both these ways, that we would be able to proclaim with the confidence that Paul has that God is a giver of good gifts, and the gifts are given because they're good, and that we would eagerly desire them but we would also, in the context of that desire, seek to love one another, to build one another up. I pray, Lord, that, uh, that the reasons we come on Sunday would not be merely self-oriented, but that we would come with a purpose to point people to Jesus, to show them his love, to proclaim his truth, to build up the body of Christ. Help us to grow not just in giftedness as a church, but in maturity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we worship this morning, let's go ahead and do what I was talking about earlier. Let's put the focus on Jesus who lived the life we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve and freely invited us to be adopted into his family. Let's come forward if you're a Christian and take communion. And let's pray and ask God for the gifts. If there's a gift on the list that's encouraging to you, that's exciting, that's been impacting on your life, and you wish that you had it, ask. We've got a couple of people up here available for prayer as well, and so if you'd like somebody to pray with you about the gifts or about anything else, let's be the body as we worship today.